Second reading this morning is from Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was, uh, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that this was being done by, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. He opened it for It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened... They saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter's not really sure that what has happened to him is real. This escape of his from prison. At first he thinks that he's dreaming or that he's having some kind of, some kind of vision. This angel that's helped him out of through the prison gates. It's just a dream. I wonder if Andrew Brunson had those kinds of dreams. You might remember Andrew. We had been praying for him here in this church. Brunson had lived in Turkey for 23 years. He was the pastor of a tiny little church. Just 23, uh, just about 25 members in that church. The Izmir Resurrection Church. And then in 2016, there was an attempted coup in Turkey. At least that's what the Turkish government claimed. 
And the government used that as an opportunity to round up all kinds of people that they imagined to be enemies of the state, including Andrew Brunson, the pastor of a church with just 25 people. For nearly two years, Andrew languished in prison without a trial. And when he was finally brought before a judge in May of 2018, his hearing lasted for 11 hours. The judge dismissed or refused to hear any of the witnesses that Brunson had brought to his defense. He was on trial for his life in a kangaroo court in an Islamic country openly hostile to Christianity. It was the direct involvement of President Trump that led to Brunson's release. A release that came only after the president imposed sanctions against Turkey. It was the first time in U.S. history that the United States imposed sanctions against an ally. Keep in mind that Turkey is a member of NATO. They're supposed to be on our side. I remember praying for Andrew and thinking, this guy's going to die. There's no way they're going to let this man out. Like Peter in prison waiting to die, he was there as a political pawn. He hadn't actually done anything wrong. The president of Turkey was hoping to get a prisoner in the United States uh, returned to him. And he was hoping to have some kind of swap, something the United States doesn't do. But as the words of the hymn have it, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He was set free. At first, Peter wasn't sure if what he was seeing was real. But then, once he was finally out of the prison, the angel disappears and he kind of wakes up. And he realizes, okay, this wasn't a dream. God somehow, in his sovereign will, had intervened in human history and caused Peter to be loosed from his imprisonment. Peter's release, like Andrew's release was a real, this world, concrete, physical escape. The story of Peter getting out of jail, it's not a parable. It's not a legend. It's something that really happened. And four squads of soldiers who had been guarding Peter, 16 soldiers all together, four squads of soldiers were put to death. That's how real it was. Sixteen men died so that Peter might be set free. The president of Turkey had to suffer international loss of faith so that Andrew Brunson might go free. God places a high value on the lives of his own people. What I want to do this morning is look at the historical background of this story of the release of Peter. And then I want to circle around at the end and talk about some of the spiritual truths that are um, foreshadowed in this story. You might know that 11 out of 12 of the apostles are eventually martyred. They're killed for their belief in Jesus. Well... They're not just killed for their belief in Jesus. They're killed for their belief in Jesus. Plus, they run their mouth off about this belief. People will leave you alone if you just keep your mouth shut about what you believe. The only martyrdom of an apostle that's recorded for us in Scripture is this one here, the killing of James. There are several Jameses in the New Testament. This James is James, the brother of John. The two of these men are known as the sons of thunder. They're called the sons of thunder 
Apparently, because they were very loud, they were explosive Christians, they were not mousy followers of Jesus, they were loud-mouthed disciples. And as the result of their loud-mouthedness, King Herod, an evil king who was a collaborator with the occupying Romans, had him killed by a sword. I don't know, they ran him through, they cut his head off, they did something That probably happened in the year 44 A.D. So we're about 11 years now after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When James was killed with the sword, the Jews in Jerusalem cheered. Because James must have been annoying to them. Like the rest of the Christians. And Herod, who was a Jewish king, but was also a politician in some sense, he was interested in public opinion. He saw how much the people in Jerusalem cheered when James was killed, so he arrested Peter too. And he threw him in jail with the plans to kill him right after the Passover was over. Peter was such a high-value prisoner that Herod assigned 16 soldiers to guard him. Peter's behind bars. There are several layers of bars. You may have noticed in the in the story, he's got to go out of one set of gates and another set of gates. And finally to get to the streets, he's behind bars. He's got chains on both arms. I guess he's chained to the wall. He's chained to the floor. And he's got 16 soldiers guarding him. But the church is praying. Earnest Prayer for him was made to God by the church. We read in verse 5, there are thousands of Christians in Jerusalem at this time. And they're gathering in prayer to pray for their pastor who's in jail. Now this Tuesday, uh, we will gather here in the sanctuary for one of... Uh, our favorite services each year. We do a, a Thanksgiving service each year. It's very uh, low-key. Uh, and it's uh, the only time when we come together to worship God and not ask God for anything. All we do is we thank Him for all of the stuff that He's already uh, given to us. We've had a hard year. 2020 has been a really difficult year. But in this year, in spite of this year, God has been blessing us. And so we're going to gather on Tuesday as the people of God to lift up praise to God and just to worship Him. There'll be some music, some scripture readings, time of prayer, time of sharing. Uh, People will stand up and share their thanksgivings. It'll last about an hour. That's from 7 till 8 p.m. this coming Tuesday. And I really encourage you to be there. Earnest prayer was made for Peter to God by the church. Peter walks out of this prison in the middle of the night, the uh, the night before he's supposed to be executed. And he goes to Mary's house. Mary is the mother of John Mark. You may know that John Mark was Peter's secretary. All right, He was the one who knew Latin and Greek. Peter apparently only uh, only knew uh, Hebrew. But uh, when Peter goes on his missionary journeys, John Mark goes with him. And the Gospel of Mark is written by this man. Okay, so the Gospel of Mark is uh, is typically understood by biblical scholars as representing Peter's point of view uh, 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 in the gospel story. At this time in history, of course, we're 11 years after the resurrection. There are no church buildings. The church doesn't have a 
sanctuary, a church building. They meet regularly in the temple courts. They still think of themselves as Jews. They're still worshiping uh, Yahweh. And so they go to the temple courts regularly uh, for uh, public services there. But they also are meeting in each other's houses. We know this from Acts chapter 2, where it's very explicit that the rhythm of Christian life involves regularly being in public worship, which is what we're doing here, but also regularly being in each other's houses. Now, the way that we do that here at this church is with our small group Bible studies. We get together in groups, clumps of people, Some of us meet here at the church, some of us meet at people's houses, some of us meet in other people's backyards, and that part of the life of the church is crucial. If you are not engaged in at least one small group Bible study, you're missing out on something essential to the Christian life. Yes, it's important to be in public worship, absolutely. But the fellowship is happening in these smaller groups. And there's sort of some kind of house church there at Mary's house. It seems like it was a pretty big house because there is a foregate in this house. So she's, she's, uh, she's got like a courtyard between her main house and the street. Peter comes knocking at the gate. It's some distance from the gate into the house. He's knocking at the gate. The house is large. It has a courtyard. And Peter's banging at the gate. And a servant girl goes out. Another indication of the relative wealth of this woman. She goes out to see who's knocking at the gate. And she sees that it's Peter. She hears his voice. And she's so overjoyed, she forgets to let him in. And she runs back into the house. She tells everybody, Peter's at the gate. Peter's at the gate. And they say that she's crazy. And she keeps insisting, no, he's at the gate. And they're thinking, well, it must be his angel. Some kind of spirit is out there. Finally, they get their act together and they go out and see Peter at the gate. He actually doesn't come in the house. He hushes them. Be quiet. I mean, maybe he's worried that people are still chasing him from the jail. He tells them what's happened. He tells them to tell the other people in the group, and then he leaves for another place. The Bible doesn't tell us where he goes. The next day, when the sun comes up, prison officials discover that Peter is missing from the jail cell, and Herod does a little investigation into the matter, and then all 16 of Peter's guards are executed. It's an amazing escape. But you know, the Bible from beginning to end, is one amazing escape story. This past week, we've been talking about uh, this passage of Scripture in uh, the Valley Christian School Chapel. And uh, last Thursday, when we were meeting here, uh, the students began listing escape stories from the Bible that they remembered. And that list went on so long that The chapel service went over and we had to cut it short. We had to cut one of the songs and the affirmation at the end of the service because there were so many escape stories. Some of them you know. Noah's Ark, escaping from the flood. Lot and his family escaping from Sodom. Joseph, thrown into the well by his Nasty brothers, he escapes out of that well, but he escapes into slavery, and then he's down in Egypt, and then later Joseph gets 
thrown into prison because Potiphar tries to seduce him and he rebuffs her. He spends a couple years in prison. All escape stories. Of course, the biggest escape story in Scripture is the exodus, the exodus out of Egypt. An entire nation escaping slavery under the leadership of Moses. The Psalms often have escape language. I love Psalm 40, uh, Psalm 40 verse 2. He brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. This escape, David, David talking about his escape, uh, uh, from, from a captor. Daniel in the lion's den. Alright? We know how that story was supposed to turn out, we know how it did turn out. The escape from Herod in the slaughter of the innocents. You remember when the wise men finally arrive, um, and come looking for the new king of the Jews. They go to Herod and they say, well, where, where's the new king of the Jews? And uh, he's interested naturally. And so he has all of the baby boys killed. 2,000 die. Meanwhile, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they've escaped off down to Egypt. And so they're saved. Another escape story. But I think the central escape story in Scripture and the centerpiece of Scripture is the gospel itself. Jesus describes his own mission as facilitating escape. In his first public sermon in his hometown in in Nazareth, he describes himself as the one who proclaims freedom to the captives. Here's what we read. This is Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. He went to Jerusalem, Jesus went to Jerusalem, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are on him, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The whole Bible is an escape story. Setting captives free, breaking bondage, release from slavery. Jesus is the second Moses who leads the church to freedom. He is the number one conductor on the Underground Railroad. The Bible is all about freedom and freedom from bondage. Which requires us to think for a moment about the bondage and the slavery that we need to be set free from. We live in a free country. We imagine we're very free. And yet we're bound. One of the things that's become clearer to me over time as your pastor and also as uh, the chaplain at Valley Christian School is that our number one problem is not knowing right from wrong. Well, sometimes like... We need a little bit of instruction about 
good and evil. But generally speaking, we know the difference between right and wrong. Even pagans understand the difference between right and wrong. Our problem isn't knowing the difference between good and evil. Our problem isn't even uh, wanting to do the good. Lots of us know what's good and want to do the good. Our problem is that we know the good. We want to do the good. Ah, but we find ourselves not doing it. Which seems strange, but it shouldn't because if you're honest with yourself, you'll see that pattern in your own life. You see the good, you want the good, and for some crazy reason you still don't do it. Now, I'm not just beating up on us because the Apostle Paul describes the exact same condition in his own life. The Apostle Paul, the super-Christian, had this same experience of knowing the good, desiring the good, and still perversely uh, doing the wrong thing. This is what we read in Romans chapter 7, this is 23 and 24. I see a different law in my body, Paul writes, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. The law that is in my flesh. What a wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of death? Paul feels trapped even in himself. So how do we escape from this bondage, this slavery, this prison house of sin that even we, the redeemed, face? Even people like Paul face? Well, to think about this stepwise, I think we turn to Christ first. That's the first thing that we do. If we're in slavery to sin, we turn to Christ. We recognize that his death is an atonement that's been offered for our sin. If we receive that atonement, then we're free from the guilt of sin. We're no longer under a legal death sentence. God has restored us to fellowship with himself. That's step one. We're justified. We call that called being justified. That's being born again. That happens by faith in Jesus Christ. That's step one. But though we are justified and we're assured of eternity with God in New Jerusalem, the reality is we continue to sin. Even when we're struggling with sin, even when we're trying to not sin, we continue to sin perversely. I was talking about this in the boys' Bible study class, and one of the students had this Wonderful insight to this feeling. And he said, it's like saying, I don't know what I was thinking. You've done something, and afterwards you're like, what was I thinking? Common experience, right? You know what's right. You actually want to do what's right. And yet you do this crazy thing that you know you know is wrong. We're justified. We're short of eternity with God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, but yet we have, continue to have this experience. We continue to struggle with sin, and we continue to desire to be free from it. Even though we're saved, we still need help. I mean, think of it this way. Imagine that you're a slave. You've been born into slavery. You're living in Mississippi. The year is 1918. Help, help me, help me, Rose. 1864. Okay. The Emancipation Proclamation. When does that happen? Give me a date. Okay. So it's in 64. The Emancipation Proclamation has happened. 
You've been declared free by the federal government of the United States, but you're still in chains. You're declared free, but you're still enslaved. You're not going to be actually free until the war is over. We've been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, but we won't really be free until this war is over when we see Jesus face to face one day. That's when it's done. All right. In the meantime, we're kind of stuck in between. God has declared us to be free. And yet we find ourselves dragging around these chains of sin and the flesh. The process of becoming more free, the process of living into the emancipation that has been declared, is what we call sanctification. It's a gradual process. And knowing that we've been emancipated is the first step. Okay, You don't act free. Unless somebody tells you that you are free. If you haven't heard the news about the Emancipation Proclamation, you don't begin to think like a free man. And so the first thing we need to do is to understand that we have been set free. And then we begin to act and to think more like free people. We have to grow into our freedom. We have to exercise our freedom muscles. Yes, it takes work to be free. And we do that, I think, by remembering who that we are, that we are redeemed children, that we've been released from bondage uh, by God. We remember that we are loved by God. And we begin to drink in the Word of God, the truth that sets us free. And we live with Jesus, the one who has set us free. We live with Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our freedom. A little earlier in this service, we prayed for some important things, and I appreciated being able to do that with you this morning. Thank you for taking the time to do that. But I think some of us in this congregation need to be praying about freedom. I think some of us are trapped in habits and patterns of behaviors that we don't like, that we hate, but that we find ourselves stuck in like miry clay. Now our God is a God of freedom and the whole of scriptures is a story of setting people free. It's a story of escape. The gospel proclaims the emancipation of those who've been captive. And so we're set free by faith in Jesus Christ and yet we need to be pulled up out of that miry clay. And so I think we're going to spend a little time now at the close of this sermon. I think we have time to pray for our freedom Pray for release from whatever it is that's holding us back or that we're stuck in that we don't want to be stuck in anymore. It's probably different for each one of us. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. May that be our song this day. May we follow Jesus into the freedom that he has purchased for us by his own death. And may we do that with singing and with joy and with victory. So let's pray for those things right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Because Jesus, you've set us free. You found us captives of sin and death and 
You had mercy on us and you laid down your life so that we could be the ones who were released from this prison house. For that we thank you. But Lord Jesus, the truth is we continue to be trapped by things in our lives that we want to be different. And we keep going back to things that we've tried to walk away from in the past. We pray that you would set us free from those things. We pray that we would be free indeed. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak into our lives your emancipation. Lord, I pray that we might be free men and free women growing up into our freedom. Not license, but freedom. I pray that we might move in boldness and in victory, in confidence. That we might move in the way that you have laid out for us to live in. A way that is free from pitfalls and free from danger. Jesus, we thank you for making all of these things possible. And we pray for your freedom this day. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.